Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order and talk about them. I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. Michael. Mm Mm-hmm? Look upon what is in my hand. It is the Hanged Man's card. (gasps) Not the Hanged Man's card. The Hanged Man. Let me, let me, let me get Foley. Hold on. Ha-ha! Let me tell you about the plot of many books to come. Okay, I'm listening. That's it! Welcome to The Gunslinger. (laughs) That is, uh, that's my interpretation of, um, all of the magic in The Dark Tower. (laughs) Um... (laughs) It's pretty accurate. Uh, today we are talking about 1982's The Gunslinger, the the first installment in King's, uh, what we called in an earlier episode on The Stand, King's kind of second claimant to, to magnum opus, The Dark Tower series. What? I guess that's true. Has he had a third one? Um, you know, uh, Magic Pro player Luis Scott Vargas has famously had multiple Hall of Fame worthy runs in his career since he has been inducted into the Hall of Fame. But, um, you know, Stephen King, kind of a lesser known name than Luis Scott Vargas, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, has he had multiple, you know, one magnum opus, the stand, you know, blows up the Stephen King name. Everyone knows who he is. OK, that makes sense to me. The Dark Tower. That really carries him through the 90s, you know? Yeah. The promise of what the Dark Tower could be really carries him through that. But is, uh, I, I can't think of another thing after the Dark Tower that's carried as much, I don't know, cultural, way. oh, maybe it. Maybe it's the other one. Yeah. I was going to say, so I think how this works, um, and this is, again, to, you know, harken back to the stand episode, when I was an itty-bitty baby uh, on, like, AOL internet, Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hanging out on the Stephen King list serves because this is what I was doing. Uh, It was definitely like two camps. Uh, You were, you know, probably a stand person or a Dark Tower person in terms of which one you thought was uh, King's best book. And I think Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right that kind of our generation, um, because I was very young on these list serves. Let us be clear. There were not many other like 12 year olds hanging out on them. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think for like people our generation and younger, we kind of uh, have our stake in this, which is that third term it as kind of the the alternative magnum opus. Right. What is Stephen King to this other group of people? Um, and I think The Stand and uh, The Dark Tower are probably pretty big for people who are readers of the books. Um, and I know there are people who like don't really like Stephen King, but they like the Dark Tower books because they're kind of different from his his normal stuff. Um, but I think the thing about it is that it's kind of like the transmedia 
uh, hit, right? That's the one that people have read or they have seen the films. So that's an interesting element there. Yeah, the TV movie, I think, does a lot to kind of move the bar on um, on that as well, uh, on it specifically. Uh, you know, I don't know if I've said this. Uh, I've, I'm sure I've said this on some Range Touch property. You go to YouTube.com slash Range Touch or perhaps uh, RangeTouch.com to find out about all the things that we do. Patreon.com slash Range Touch. But uh, all the info is in the description below the episode. <laughs> but uh, I, I've said this somewhere, but I don't think on the show that uh, it's very funny to me that you at like age 12 were like on Stephen King fan forums and uh, I was on uh, Final Fantasy forums pretending to uh, not pretending that's like RPing what we would now call RPing mm -hmm. as uh, like Quinna Quinn from Final Fantasy 9 and getting banned constantly <laughs> for like pretending to be the world's perhaps most annoying character. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we took, we took different routes, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, in, in our, uh, online internet usage, but, uh, but yeah, no, yeah, I think that's right. And uh, interestingly enough, I guess the other one too, is like the kind of like, um, I don't know, real worldy kind of stuff that comes up in the eighties. So like stand by me and misery, these mm -hmm. other kind of like, I don't know, uh, the real horror the whole time was the people around us. <gasps> like the, that kind of work mm -hmm. the real horror the whole time of course was Kiefer Sutherland your evil <laughs> older brother yeah <laughs> but uh but yeah you know this is uh, uh, all to say it, it is interesting that this is kind of the the final Stephen King magnum opus as well like the Dark Tower series in that you know he has not written anything since the last Dark Tower book that has uh I think exploded into like public consciousness or like captured a lot of fandom in that same way mm -hmm. and i mean to be clear also i don't think that that's what he's trying to do and it is explicitly kind of what he was trying to do with this book which he has envisioned uh and i've you know we've we've each of us actually read some uh sort of ancillary material king talking about this work and the thing that sort of jumped out at me was a claim in um, I believe it is the introduction, yes, the introduction to the revised version of this novel, and there are two different versions of this novel, and we'll talk about that in our approach to it in a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's, again, this is another complicated one. Uh, but he talks about uh, in that introduction that his goal, like straight up his explicit goal uh, when he conceived the Dark Tower series when he was like 19, 20 years old, uh, was to write the longest popular novel in history. And that is a direct <laughs> quote. The longest popular novel in history. <laughs> what? That's like, that's like me like, I'm going to eat more pie than anyone else. <laughs> I'm going to eat all the pie. And like, I respect the people that can eat more pie than everyone else, but I don't know if eating more pie is inherently a goal that I can you know, share or aspire to or care about really in, the, in a strong way. Yeah, it's interesting. And he sort of talks about in the introduction, which is called uh, On Being 19 and a few other things. Uh, hmm. He talks about how, you know, th there is really no good reason for him to want to have written the longest popular novel in history. He just wanted to do it. And he's like, maybe that's just the American in me. I, I no one was stopping me. So I did it. Uh, and so 
Uh, the other thing to say is that The Gunslinger itself is not a terribly long novel, but King approaches the Dark Tower series, which consists of seven novels, uh, as installments in one very long novel. That is that is how he understands this series. And that is one of the reasons why uh, in the early 2000s, when he is finishing up the series, because he, you know, uh, carries this out over the entire course of his career, essentially up until that point, uh, once he gets to the end, he decides he's going to go back and revise the first book in order to bring it in line with kind of how things have developed further on in the series. Uh, and he considers the second book to have been the one where he found the voice for the series. And so I think he kind of stops there. Um, and of course, because this is the kind of thing it is and it's the world we live in, the changes that he has made in the revised edition are controversial uh, among fans, right? There are people who are purists. It's kind of a, it's a special edition kind of thing, right? Very Star Wars in that way. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, and maybe we should say this up front. Um. I'm a Dark Tower person, right? Like I'm someone who, when I discovered these novels when I was, I don't know, ten, eleven. They're certainly in like that opening swath of five, ten books by Stephen King that I read. Um. You know, I read The Gunslinger, like, my, my mom had them, and only Wizard and Glass had was out at the time. So I can probably tell you, when did Wizard and Glass come out? Oh, like, 94? Is that true? Yeah, so, uh, 97. So I probably read these in, like, the year 2000, I would say, or 2001. Mm -hmm. um, and so, when Wizard and Glass came out, they, like, re-released all of the books uh, with the kind of uh, illustrations and all of that, and so... I guess my mom had gotten them from maybe like a book club or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. one of those mail order things. And so we had all of them up to that point. And uh, I knew, like I palpably knew that like we were in the Dark Tower drought. You know, like, yeah. he had not been working on this for a long time. And I really remember the day that Stephen King got hit by the van because my mom was like, he's never going to finish those goddamn books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she was like so pissed off about it. Uh, he talks about that in the introduction. <laughs> oh, oh, for the revised book? Yeah, where he, um, he, he talks about sort of uh, all the letters he got over his uh, sort of career from people being like, I need to know how this series ends. Please, I'm a very old person. I have, you know, this terminal illness. I am not going to see the end of the series. Please just tell me what happens to Roland in the Cotet. Let me know. And as he says in the introduction, I couldn't tell you if I wanted to because I don't know the story until I write it. And I had an outline once, but I lost it along the way. And so I don't even know where this story is going. And then, of course, his tune changes very, very quickly once he has that car accident. And that is the direct impetus for him being like, oh, I guess I'm going to finish these these books now because I don't want this story to remain unfinished. And so after that accident, rapid fire, he writes the final three volumes one right after the other so sorry uh, no 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 and that's like 2,000 pages or something right or mm -hmm. 1,500 somewhere in there 2,000 you know yeah he, he hammers them out at the end uh or you know when he's finishing up the books but 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 that's all to say so you know I read these kind of the first four novels kind of as a unit you know kind of back to back to back and uh really was excited about the new books coming out when they when they came out or the last three and had mixed reactions, although not as negative as many people have to them, although we'll talk about that in like three years or whenever we get there. Um, but I, I still have a really special place in my heart for uh, for the Gunslinger in particular. And 
the unrevised version, which is the version that we read for today, and we'll talk a little bit, uh, you know, I guess in the uh, or in the discussion part of this episode about some of the differences between them. But like you said, they are mostly just to bring this in line. So a lot of like um, uh, geography and characters and like species and uh, maybe. Um, unifying some of the world building kind of stuff but exactly like you're saying the the star wars special edition analogy is really appropriate because it's doing a lot of stuff to bring in other later parts of the franchise kind of into that original book and um it's for the worse uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> the original book is i think much better but i'm a big you know like i said big dark tower fan enjoyed it you are not a dark tower person right yeah i fucking hate this shit <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, I'm curious, you know, I'm curious to see if your opinion changes. I, I, I also think something's going to be really interesting um, about reading these not in a line. I think 99% of people, right, read these all in a row. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to go back and reread these books as we read the next ones. And so it's going to be very interesting to like be like, all right, and we're plopping back down in the story and, and seeing what happens. Um but uh, I mean, is there in is it just your general hatred of fantasy that makes you not like it? Uh, I mean, so to, to be like sort of less combative, right? I my approach to the Dark Tower was very much influenced by kind of my not dislike of fantasy um, so much as your a dis- unalloyed and angry hatred. <laughs> uh, I, I see you. Uh, uh, you know, like, <laughs> you know, uh, like people rip phone books in half. I see you doing that with the Lord of the Rings all the time. Mm-hmm. Sort of Shannara. I've seen you just bite <laughs> into like an apple. Yes. I'm like kingdom for sale. More like kingdom for shit. Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, those are good. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's the, maybe the kingdom for sale sold series is what we do after <laughs> Stephen King. Those, are, those books are cool. Okay. But anyway. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I, I came to Stephen King, uh, as, as we've sort of established very young. Um, and this is like before I'm on the Stephen King, uh, listservs because we don't have internet at this point. And I'm just asking for Stephen King books for Christmas and I'm getting them and I'm just reading them one right after the other. And so I eventually work my way through the catalog to the point where I get to the dark tower or rather the gunslinger and I read it and I'm like, what the hell is this? because this is not a horror novel, although there are kind of like weird, horrific elements in it. Uh, And it was not what I wanted, not what I expected, and not something I was terribly interested in because it does have kind of the trappings of of fantasy. Uh, And for me, I I don't understand uh, like what it is about like me at age 10 and how I needed to have some sort of like weird grounded realism before I, I whipped off into the wild unknown, but that's how I worked. Um, so this starting with like a Western set in the post-apocalyptic future, I was, I was totally checked out, but I did not dislike this book so much that I didn't try to read the next one. And that was where I checked out because I think King is correct. That's where it kind of finds its voice and becomes more explicitly like, okay, this is going to be a fantasy epic. And I just didn't care. Like I didn't care about anything that was happening And uh, I knew other Stephen King fans really liked these books. And in fact, the only reason I ended up reading the series other than uh, I mean, not even other than because I liked Stephen King so much. And after his accident, uh, and this is a thing that people don't talk about now, uh, after his accident, when he said he was finishing the Dark Tower series, he also said he was then retiring. He was never going to write another book again. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember that. And so I thought, well, why not just cap it off? Because I have already read almost everything this man has written. So I will read the Dark Tower series. And so I ended up reading it uh, probably about the same time that you were uh, and in the run up to kind of the publication of the last three. And I was surprised to discover in book three, I liked it. Uh, Like book three is where it flips for me. Um, and, uh, I, I'm looking forward actually to, to revisiting the wastelands and seeing how that holds up, uh, because in the next book immediately it falls to pieces again. And I'm kind of, uh, <laughs> from, from book four on, and especially like the last three I'm there because I'm just like, what is he going to do next? Like, what is going on? Like, how does he think he's going to tie this off? Because it just gets so weird and wacky. Um, and then, you know, I finished it and he went ahead and kept writing books and quite literally, right. That's when I stopped keeping up with Stephen King because I had kind of capped it off, I thought, and then he didn't retire. And now here I am doing this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he's still writing books. You told me, you sent me a message like two days ago. You're like, yep. New book from Steve coming out. (laughs) I had to add it to the spreadsheet. Yep. I was like, great. Um, I think you said we're in 2028 now. Yep. Mm, great great thanks steve uh yeah we'll talk a, l- a little bit about like the dark tower stuff uh here at the end of the episode or when, not here at the end of the episode but when we get to the end of the episode but um michael can you tell us a little bit about the uh production history of the thing like where where did these come from as i've already mentioned uh steve starts writing this book when he's 19 uh he he tells this story kind of very famously at, he, at the end, when he's uh, doing the final three volumes is when he starts doing uh, this new introduction to, to the previous published editions, uh, where he explains that he was in college and he was 19 and he inherited. Uh, he, he always uses the word inherited here. I don't know exactly. I mean, he, he just means like I think it came to him somehow, but it's a, a weird word choice because it sounds like someone died and they left me a box of really nice typing paper because that's what he gets. He inherits somehow a nice box of typing paper and he of course wants to be a writer and so he puts one of these sheets of paper into his typewriter and he writes one line one sentence which is the opening sentence of of this novel the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed and from this point forward from age 19 on King is working on the Dark Tower kind of constantly in his head, and it becomes this uh, big fantasy epic that's sort of inspired by Robert Browning's long poem, uh, Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came. Uh, And that's something that he had just been studying and hidden in his college coursework. And so uh, he says in in one of the extraneous essays that I've read that, you know, oftentimes when you're a writer and you have these stories kind of constantly bouncing around in your head, there are ones that just die, right? There are things that are kind of holding your interest for a while, but then they fall away and they die and you don't really return to them. They turn out to be false starts or whatever. Um, And he says, even though he was 19 when he first conceived of this idea, the story of Roland the Gunslinger in the Dark Tower stayed with him uh, throughout kind of all of his ups and downs, and he was always kind of working on it. And so eventually, once his career gets started, uh, he has written out sort of chapter by chapter this book, or he he does over these kind of coming years, uh, and they get published as standalone short stories in uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, 
Uh, so they get published over a period of 1978 to 1981. And that's when the magazine is under the editorship of Ed Furman to who this book is dedicated. So it says, you know, to Ed Furman, who took a chance on these stories one by one. So that happens uh, in the Dead Zone episode. We discussed uh, fix up novels that come out of genre publishing at this time uh, where you have short stories that you publish across multiple issues of a magazine and then you take them together, do some light editing, and then you publish that together as a novel. And that's what this ends up being. Uh, first, these stories come out and then King is meeting with Donald M. Grant, who is or was, I'm not sure if he's still around, a uh, sort of small press boutique publisher who specializes in like illustrated uh, editions, like rare editions, collector's editions of, of novels. And he wanted to do something with Stephen King and he wanted to uh, he wanted to know if there was anything King thought might be interesting for this project. And King brought up the gunslinger, which had just recently, uh, you know, been serialized. And so that's where the gunslinger comes from. In 1982, it is published as this small press edition uh, with illustrations by Michael Whalen, who's a very uh, well-known uh, fantasy and science fiction illustrator of this time period. And it's, I can't remember the, the exact numbers, but it's something like, you know, they're are 200 editions or 200 copies, I think, and then they sell out. And then I think the, the demand is so good that they make 200 more and then those sell. And then it kind of goes quiet for a while. Uh, later on, and I read two different dates for this, so I'm not sure which is correct, um, but it said that in the sort of ad copy or like the promotional copy for Pet Cemetery, you know, like in the flyleaf or whatever, it's like by the author, of, you know, Stephen King, by the, the, the author of, uh, and then they list like sort of a couple of his most recent works. Mm -hmm. um, so 1983 is when Pet Cemetery is published, and it supposedly uh, lists uh, The Gunslinger here. Uh, but the actual thing that I read, I think, uh, said 1987. So I think that might have been like a mass market paperback a couple years later of Pet Cemetery. Anyway, uh, it mentions, you know, Stephen King, the author of The Gunslinger, and this is mass market. So people are seeing it and people are apparently calling up the publisher. And this is, again, the story that King tells, asking, well, how do I get The Gunslinger? I can't get The Gunslinger. They don't have it at the library. I can't find it in the bookstore. Where's The Gunslinger? I want to read this Stephen King book, The Gunslinger. I I love reading Stephen King. Where is the gunslinger? Whenever the gunslinger is not on screen, people should be asking, where is the gunslinger? <laughs> well, when I go and see the movie, I point up there and I say, that's the gunslinger. <laughs> uh, so uh, the, 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 the reader demand, right? People wanted this Stephen King book. So uh, the reader demand for it produced the following year in 1988, a uh, plume trade paperback edition with Michael Whalen's full color illustrations. And then after that, it gets, uh, you know, put into like the signet paperbacks that, uh, you know, are still on the shelves today. They don't have the illustrations in them, but uh, well, they have some of the illustrations like sort of the interchapter like sketches but not like the full colors um and yeah so that's uh that's how the gunslinger comes to be and then in 2003 is when the revised and expanded quote-unquote version is published and it's about i think in total seven pages longer than the original yeah um and also has a different subtitle yes well i don't think the first one has a subtitle yeah the you know, the original does not have a subtitle it's just the gunslinger um and then uh, my trade paperback says The Dark Tower, The Gunslinger. And I don't know what that is supposed to 
mean other than i guess it's part of the, the series but like the the title page does not say you know the dark tower of the gunslinger only the cover um but uh but the revised and expanded uh edition which i don't think that we're going to do we don't we have not planned to do one full episode on i don't think we're going to be doing that mm-hmm. um but uh it it specifically has a subtitle of resumption right mm-hmm. um the 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 thing that I will say is that uh, you know before we get into the the five cent summary is that another interesting kind of thing of production here is that you know I have a um, this mass market paperback the signet one we were talking about you have the original uh, trade paperback um, these are both editions that are printed in the eighties right I, my my copy is from I think I said earlier eighty eight mm-hmm. um, no eighty nine is when it's from um, and so. Uh, you can't you you need to buy a used book if you want to read this version of it uh stephen king's you know the the media apparatus that is stephen king much like uh the stand has obliterated this original edition from the marketplace i mean you can't go to barnes and noble or whatever and pick up a, a, a physical edition a new printing of the gunslinger and have it be the old version so um, we'll talk a little bit about some of those differences later on, uh, but they are mostly kind of world building and thematic, like I said earlier, um, and uh, and kind of getting the universe in all the all the ducks in a row. Although I think um, getting all the ducks in a row does make it a little bit less interesting. Um, any other production stuff uh, here at the beginning, Michael? Uh, I mean, not particularly. Why don't I hand it over to you for the five sentence summary? So this is a five cent summary. We do this for every book. Uh, you got to say the whole plot of the book, beginning to end, in five sentences. It's pretty easy. My my um, my copy of the book is oh three hundred fifteen pages. You know, little little pages. This is not you know as Michael said earlier, it's not a long book. Um, it does say number one bestseller on the front though, so that's interesting. <laughs> um, so you know, let me let me just dive into it. All right, sentence one. <clears throat> Here we go. <clears throat> The man in black fled across the desert, and the gunslinger followed. Semicolon. <laughs> the, thus begins the story of Roland Deschain, the last gunslinger on the planet. Uh, open parentheses, question mark, close parentheses, period. <laughs> uh, the gunslinger is about this very thing. Comma, and we follow the gunslinger through many scenarios, like going to a town, comma, or uh, talking to a guy, comma, or talking to a kid, comma, or talking to another guy. <laughs> the book sets up the Dark Tower series in a broad way, comma, which is about... A, a post-apocalyptic fantasy world where bad stuff is growing and good stuff is going away. Period. That's my third sentence, right? Sure. Okay. Two more sentences. Roland is a character who will sacrifice anything and everything on his journey toward the tower, comma, and he is journeying toward the tower because he believes that it is important to do open parentheses because none of this is clear in this first novel. <laughs> Close parentheses, period. <laughs> 
at the end of the book, he finds the guy he was chasing the whole time and they have a jolly talk with one another. <laughs> comma, and the plot of the next book is revealed. <laughs> Period. That's the five sentence summary. That's that's what happens in the gunslinger. Yep. It's kind of a weird uh, to to read it now, especially with the knowledge of the other Dark Tower books, which we're not going to get too into here. Um, I get the desire from King to uh, to revise it because it really does kind of feel like a foyer, right? Like it doesn't have a lot of texture to it. It's a lot of vibes. Um, and where there's not vibes, there's plot. Where there's not vibes, there's plot. There's a, I don't know, messenger bag for us. <laughs> no, it's like we do like a plain black tea and it's like written on the, uh, like on the hem at the bottom and like really <laughs> fine stitching. Um, but, but, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, th- this whole book is about what Roland is doing at any given moment. And then sometimes we flash back into his history of like, what's going on with the gunslingers or whatever, but it's a fantasy story, you know, like straight up. It, maybe the setting itself is a little bit wiggly with that. It's this kind of far futurey kind of thing, dead technology, all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, it's about a dude on a quest and the people he meets along the way. It is not more or less complicated than that and uh stephen king makes it infinitely more complicated than that you know as he goes along with the dark tower but this first book is really just some vignettes of stuff that's happening um and i think those vignettes are interesting and cool to talk about but i don't think that there is you know a particular journey for roland across the story or, or much of anything like that in fact it's kind of about a guy who kind of grows a little bit and then regresses mm-hmm. <laughs> um and uh, I don't know. So uh, I don't know what stuck out to you about the book, Michael. Um, you know, did you enjoy it more this time than you have in the past? What do you think? Well, I did not necessarily enjoy it more, but I was more conscious of the things that I was enjoying and kind of where they came from. Because as I suggested earlier, when I first read this as a kid, I was just like completely flummoxed in terms of what was happening here and the way that it was kind of mixing genres. Because if, if if you have not touched these books or heard of them, what you need to understand about Roland, this character we keep talking about, is that he is a gunslinger, literally like Clint Eastwood from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, but with really dark black hair. Yeah. Like, that is that is how he is described. That's what he looks like. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he... What if, what if he were in my cool fan? It really is like serious forum writing vibes, right? And it makes sense that King was 19 when he started it, right? He was like, who would be cool? Yeah. Okay, Clint Eastwood, (laughs) all right. And this is not me just like, you know, projecting like the obvious influence back. Like this is a thing King has owned up to. He owns up to it in that essay on being 19, where he's like, yeah, you know, when I was in college, people were really into Lord of the Rings. Hobbits were everywhere. Marys and Pippins were all over Woodstock. And I really liked that story, but... Uh, I never really wanted to write like and I wanted to write a kind of my own fantasy story. And we saw, you know, sort of the first attempt at that in in The Stand. Uh, But he never really wanted to write a sort of straight up fantasy story. Again, look at The Stand. Uh, He wanted to write something that to him seemed more like less uh, weighted down by kind of like, you know, the 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 mythology and sort of the the. Britannia of Tolkien, right? Because Stephen King, again, is kind of he is he is an American dude, right? Like what what is the American Lord of the Rings? 
And so he thinks, well, what if I had a fantasy series that starred this character played by Clint Eastwood and he is just, uh, you know, a gunslinger cowboy, but uh, rather than being a gunslinger cowboy in the Old West, it is in the far post-apocalyptic future kind of like a dying earth scenario, right? The the thing, the phrase, and it's actually a, a fantastic phrase. I love it. Uh, that everyone uses is that the world has moved on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the like things, it's not just like, you know, civilization has kind of collapsed, but literally things are running down. It's very dying earth. Uh, compasses don't work correctly anymore. You can have two compasses and they'll give you two different readings and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, he's like, okay, so... Here's this cowboy. And what if, again, instead of being a regular cowboy, he was descended from a long line of Arthurian knights who even had like their own round table in Camelot and that this fell due to kind of internal struggle and intrigue. And this guy, Roland, is the last cowboy knight to uh, walk the earth. And he is on this quest to, you know, defeat whatever who knows uh well i mean we're gonna find out right but it's not at all as you said not at all clear what the hell that means at this point and even (laughs) even like even though the things that i've just mentioned about the court and so on uh they're in this book but not presented as clearly as i just laid them out for us No, which is part of what's so cool about this book, I think, is that uh, it, it is it does the Star Wars thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's really evocative of of a world and people and culture and all these different things, but it's pretty light on the details. Um, and when we do get details, they're all through uh, Roland's perspective, mm-hmm. right? So they're they're limited. You know, we don't. There's no. Um, Notably for Stephen King, particularly early Stephen King, right? 78 to 81 is is when these were being published, uh, serialized. What we talk about in those earlier uh, episodes of uh, just King things, right? So think about Salem's Lot, that King develops this kind of wandering cinematic eye, you know, uh, where the narratorial voice and what we see as a reader, you know, what gets depicted for us kind of roams around and gives us a schematic kind of feeling. You know, we go into people's homes who are not really part of the plot or whatever, and that is not happening in this story. You know, Mm -hmm. this is a, we go backward in time through one person's perspective, but we're still locked in his mind. Um, You know, it's an extremely delimited, um, not always first person, uh, but uh, at least a limited perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think it works really well. I think that that I I wish that King did this maybe a little bit more. Um, I think where he struggles so much, and, and that's really clear to me after reading this book, where King struggles the most, at least through the books we've read so far for this show, is the middle ground between those two things. You know, I think some of the best Stephen King books are the ones where he where the camera quote unquote is allowed to go anywhere. And some of the other best ones are the ones where it's not allowed to go anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you, we only get one thing. Some of his best short stories I think are in that that mode. Um, you know, uh, survivor type mm-hmm. is the one people always talk about, but obviously that's that's really limited. But it's the books where he's like trying to to play both uh, that that tend to not work as much for me. Um, and uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's uh, really, really special. But in, in the notes here, <laughs> that's where Michael, you have a thing that says the good, the bad, and the extremely ill-advised. Yeah, I mean, 
<laughs> because and you and I talked about this a little bit, not this specific phrasing, but uh, the other thing that I think is very notable about this book is that it is somehow uh, Stephen King operating simultaneously at his absolute best and his absolute worst, like some real firecracker stuff happens in this book. And also some of just like the worst, grossest, pointless, needless, like baffling Stephen King shit also happens in this book. Uh, and so just, you know, I mean, obviously there's always a content warning, uh, uh, you know, layout in the description. Um, but just like, so, you know, there, there might be some really weird things that come up here. Uh, well, let's just kind of like, kind of, you know, not quickly, uh, but, uh, uh linearly talk, talk through some of this stuff. So the first one, the first section, right? Cause all of these are different short stories, essentially that have been mm-hmm. edited into the book. So the first one is just the gunslinger, right? Yes. Um, and that's the one with the famous opening. And he like meets a dude named, <laughs> what's this guy's name? I can't ever remember the dude's name. I only remember Zoltan, his bird. His Zoltan, the, the, the raven, um, brown. Yeah. What a, what a boring thing. So he's, he's like going through this kind of uh, desert, right? This is what, what Roland's doing. He's walking through the desert. He's following the man in black and he comes upon a, a uh, guy who is an excuse for exposition, right? Like mm-hmm. he meets this dude who's like chilling out in the wastelands here in this like pseudo desert. And he's got a patch of corn. And he's got a talking bird named Zoltan. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is also some just Stephen King stuff. Um, he says, I forget what the 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 bird Zoltan says like some weird stuff. <laughs> screw you screw you screw you and the horse you rode in on that's what the bird says it also sings beans beans the musical fruit <laughs> I, I don't know why that gets me that's very funny to me it's funny because roland comes into brown's little hut and uh zoltan screw you zoltan croaked brightly screw you and the horse you rode in on the gunslinger nodded amiably beans beans the musical fruit the raven recited inspired the more you eat the more you toot you teach him that that's all he wants to learn i guess brown said tried to teach him the lord's prayer once well so that's the vibe i mean you know the uh i I, weirdly enough i guess zoltan and brown are kind of you know they really ground you in the world right this is like a hard scrabble world that's hard to live in uh but people can be good right brown invites him in gives him food you know gives him beans which are hard to come by apparently and gives him some corn and some water um uh but like you know the lord's prayer exists right so it's kind of like our world Mm -hmm. you know it's like that's a thing that is uh beans beans the musical fruit is a thing that exists which is you know a little goofy song from our own world right but then they start talking about things like being a gunslinger and that having this kind of legendary weight to it you know that's like half um uh, uh, you know, I half uh, wandering. Uh, what do you call it? Like a knight errant. Mm-hmm. Um, but then a little bit of this kind of like Ronin vibe to it, which is very much um, uh, Italian Western style mm-hmm. uh, of like roaming into a situation and having it done. But he really, th- this is really exists. The scenario exists in order to let Roland tell a story to Brown and Zoltan about what he does in a town called Tall, which is kind of like the final. Um, the final town before you get to the desert, Mm -hmm. this desert is called the Mohane desert that he's wandering through. And so we get these kind of oscillations back and forth between like desolation 
and the last known vestiges of civilization, quote unquote. Um, and what we learn is, you know, that, that Roland has all of these things that are from a world gone by, right? People don't have guns here, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's, that's really kind of shocking. He pays for everything in gold and no one has gold or anything like that. Um, you know, everyone keeps telling him they don't have change. <laughs> um, and we get this weird, like kind of biblical story, right? It's this little, I don't know, um, moral fable between him and the man in black. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a fantasy story, but it's really, it's playing on religious iconography and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that Brown asks, because he saw the man in black come by before Roland came and they didn't talk because Brown got v- bad vibes from him. And he asks like when he asks very early on, he's like, well, he is a sorcerer. Is he a sorcerer? And Roland replies something like, you know, among other things. And so we know there's also magic going on here. And uh, in Tull, we learn, which is literally it is like a Western town, like a saloon by a dirt road uh, and kids playing in the gutters and things like that. So Roland comes in and he is in pursuit still of the man in black. We get the sense that he's been pursuing the man in black for a very long time. And everyone in town is very suspicious of him because the man in black has just come by a few days earlier and he resurrected a local sort of uh, like drug addict. Like there's there's a guy in the weed eater. Yeah, there's a guy in the town who like goes out into the desert and eats these weeds. It's called they call it devil's weed Um, and it gets you high, but also like your mind goes and then uh, you sort of start to also physically go. And this guy is known around the town as as the weed eater and he dies. But then the man in black resurrects him and he's been acting kind of weird ever since uh and the gunslinger rolls in and he learns all of this from uh, what is her name Allie yeah Allie yeah Yeah, Allie who is the uh bartender at the saloon uh and he also like and again it's it's a western right he rolls in he goes into the saloon people are suspicious of him he talks to the barmaid uh gets some information and then they shack up And uh, he spends like the next week in town, like living with her and uh, as sort of tensions slowly boil up. And then uh, the the, the time in Tull ends with spoilers, I guess. Here we are. The Tull ends with Roland killing every single person in town. Well, the thing that happens before that. Uh, you know, so there's there's like a couple things in, in the... T- yes, that does happen. <laughs> uh, the, the lead up is interesting, right? So like one of them is like, this is King working through in a different way his like evil hick stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And the children in particular, right? So like one of the children has like a glassy eye, you know, that's mm-hmm. been, uh, you know, been beaten perhaps and like is blind in one eye. One has like a corn shuck sticking out of his mouth. And, and this is again, this is also uh, the... Well, so there's that. Uh, then there is this. Um, what is the woman's name? The religious woman, uh, Sylvia Pitson. Yeah. What, a, Steve? What are you doing? <laughs> uh, Sylvia Pitson. Uh, you know, from from Des Moines. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but but she is a uh, you know a, a, a King Stock character that we're going to run into a bunch more times, and we've run into a couple times. She is Carrie White's mother, mm-hmm. um, essentially, right? So she is a um, hardline religious woman 
who gets whipped into a frenzy and in this case can whip other people into a frenzy in order to make them do evil things in the name of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she's described as like grotesque and, you know, uh, voluminous. Uh, she's a big woman. Mm-hmm. Um, it really brought to mind when I was reading this, I was thinking about the dance macabre stuff about like fatness and humanity yeah. that Stephen King does there. I mean, this is him doing that argument in, in text format, but but you were talking earlier about this is like the, the you know the duality of Stephen King, um, uh, or like him him and his two modes. Because on one hand, this whole toll sequence, right, is it's a pot boiler, right? Mm-hmm. We know things are going to go bad, and Roland keeps saying, "Yeah, the Man in Black has laid a trap for me here." But implicit in that is like, if a trap has been laid, then I can learn something. You know, there, there's there's something going on with that. And so he's kind of feeling around the town for what what's going to go wrong. He eventually figures out it's this uh, Sylvia Pitson woman that the man in black has had sex with her mm-hmm. and convinced her to basically whip everyone in the town into a frenzy to get rid of the interloper um, who is implicitly Roland in this scenario. And um, but they have this encounter where he interrogates her. And I'm saying that I've got the biggest air quotes in the world where he uh, inserts a gun into her body. Mm -hmm. And but and this is the Stephen King like this is very 1980s Stephen King. She also has an orgasm when that happens, question mark, depending on how you read it, and also has an abortion when that happens, Mm -hmm. question mark. Yeah, because the miscarriage. Yeah, the man in black has also impregnated her with like uh he has convinced her that he is an angel and uh yes. and she, from Roland's perspective uh she has been impregnated with a demon. Yes. And so so oh this is like it, it is just a straight up Italian western, you know, things are boiling to a head and then you know, it's I, I've repeated this a million times since we've read Dance Macabre, but it really is a useful kind of compass, right? Uh, you, uh, you can set your watch and warrant by it to use the Dark Towerism, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but Steve goes for the gross out, right? And it's a gross out that's like nonsensical. Like, it doesn't improve the story. Yeah. It doesn't add much to it. It's just gross and weird. And it's not even a grossness that we that that like adds interesting texture because the things that happen after this, which is him killing every person in this town are way more interesting and just as gross and kind of shocking as, as what's going on here. And so I honestly don't know what to do with it. Um, it feels very similar to some of the stuff that we're going to talk about with it and the Tommy knockers, I think where I, I can't work out a logic by which someone put this in a story mm-hmm. and not from like a censorious perspective of like, I just don't think it should be in here. Um, Purely pragmatically, I don't know what it does. Like, I don't know what. Yeah. What what are you trying to accomplish here, Steve? I Yeah. And this is where I think we're going to say this over the next couple years of the show. There are going to be lots of moments where it's just like, I don't know. And, you know, and and thinking back to Dance Macabre, right? If if horror for Stephen King is about bringing the things that we're most afraid of to light, you know, kind of shining a light on it. And sometimes those are horrifying. I don't even know what's being brought to light here. Yeah, it's uh, like, okay, religion is bad. We didn't need this scene to, to get that point. It's just, ugh, it's, it's gross. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't know what to do with it. 
and um, that won't be the last time I say this. Even won't be the last time I say this in the Dark Tower series. <laughs> won't be the last time I say this in regardless to Stephen King or regard to Stephen King. I was gonna say it's not gonna be the last time I say it in regard to this book. <laughs> uh. <laughs> But but this leads to the slaughter of Tull, which is um, amazing to me. Uh, this is one, probably one of my favorite parts of any Stephen King book. Does this does this stick out to you at all, or is this just something you like read through and you're and you're done with it? I just read through and I'm done with it. Uh, again, mm-hmm. like I remember reading this the when I was a kid and just being like, it's this is a western and he's just shooting everyone. Okay. Yeah, because it kind of turns it, right? And that's maybe what I like so much about it. And and especially because I think when I read this for the first time, um, I didn't really get the Western, you know, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't didn't have a strong sense of that genre in a broad sense. Um, And now, right, like you can't can't get a a degree in film studies without, well, theoretically you could, I guess. But I think it's hard to not uh, run into some theorizations of the Western, like what the Western does for the national imaginary, from 1930 to the 1980s, basically, um, in the United States, uh, in film. I mean, it's such a huge part of American uh, cinema going and American reading practices, too. Um, and so the moment where this goes from him being like a gruff character who, um, but who is like familiar to the Western, to being someone who uh, will just kill all of these people, you know, not caring one way or the other about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the first person that he kills is this woman he's been spending a lot of time with. One of the few characters where we really get to kind of shift over to her perspective sometimes, you know. The camera, like I said, the camera doesn't, or, you know, the the descriptive apparatus of this book doesn't really wander too much. But when it does, it, you know, um, the man in black is one of the people it wanders to and Allie is one of the other ones. And she's being held hostage. Um, you know, she's being a human shield, essentially. And Roland, without hesitation, shoots her. He guns her down uh, in the street alongside anyone else. And it really is a strong solidification to me. And it was really important to me kind of reading it the first time and reading it several times as a teenager of like my feelings about a character and what a character does can have a very ambient relationship with one another. Um, Like I can like Roland as a character. I do, I think, like Roland as a character. And have to reconcile that with the fact that he's a mass murderer who who has no concern for anyone else in the world. And if I think that there's a major misstep over the rest of the Dark Tower books, it's that Stephen King starts from this position and ha- and rethinks it too many times. Um, I, th- I think that the character of Roland changes in significant ways that are not particularly interesting to me as a reader. Um, but but yeah, this this killing everyone in Tall really blew my mind as a as a young reader and it still works for me today i think the description of it's so good he's like running through the town he he's like he goes through a barber shop and we get this description of what he's running by you know it says chipped um chipped straight razors in a warm bath or something mm-hmm. and he's like going through the front door and out the back door as people are chasing him and he's turning around and shooting he's reloading with one hand um, you know, he, he's dual wielding revolvers and reloading with the hands that are holding the revolvers. I, there's something about the kind of rhythm of it and the the description of it where I think if you're going to write an action scene, this is my kind of ideal uh, action scene. Uh, I don't know. It just really sticks out to me a whole lot. Even now, I think it works really, really well. 
It's interesting that you bring up uh, the shooting of Allie, because in the revised edition, that is one of the things that changes uh, where Mm -hmm. in in the original text, Roland does not hesitate. Uh, He just uh, blams her and very special edition, right? Uh, Han and Greedo uh, on the in the revised edition, King changes it so that Roland does have a moment of hesitation. And then I believe Allie actually begs him to shoot her. Yes, yes. Uh, in the uh, so, so we we were looking at uh, a website that kind of did a cross comparison. This is on the darktower dot org. Uh, but uh, yeah, I actually had the quote up. Uh, do, 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 do. Let me. Uh, ooh, ooh, ooh. It's somewhere here. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to read this. I don't know who put this together originally, but it's on the darktower dot org. If you look for the Gunslinger revised a side by side comparison, you can find it. Um, so this is their note. A major change between the two editions is how Allie dies. In both versions, she is held as a shield and a hostage by Sheb as the residents of Tull attack Roland. However, originally, Roland kills her out of pure instinct. His trained hands react quicker than his mind. I think this is actually, this is a little side note, I think this is actually much more charitable than what happens in the novel. In the novel, he just... She's a little editorializing. Absolutely. He just shoots her in the novel. Um, but she screams at him not to shoot, but it's too late. And the guilt of her death sits on Roland throughout the rest of the story. Also, I'm not sure that that's true. Um, but here's the, the continuance. In the revised edition, she begs Roland to kill her because she has spoken 19 to Sheb and can't bear the horrors that he whispered back to her. As she dies, King says that, quote, the last expression on her face might have been gratitude, unquote. So it turns this, you know, um, automatic machinism of Roland, you know, kind of being on the pathway and, and getting rid of things that are in his way, it turns into this like mercy killing kind of thing. I think that's robbing this of any kind of interest and in, in significance to me as a reader. And it's huge bummer. Notably, it does so by you said she spoke 19 to him, which, <sighs> yes, listener, if you have not read these books, that will make no sense to you because the revised edition also introduces this entire subplot about uh the number 19 which in later books organically becomes what they call in tv tropes right like a a, i think an arc number or like you know a a plot relevant number it's just things always come up in 19s right it becomes kind of this magic number and it relates to king's feelings when he was 19 and he started writing the series and, and all that stuff so one of the things stephen king does when he goes back to revise this first book is he inserts a bunch of references to it when they weren't there before including like this weird thing where 19 is like a magic word that will make this guy tell you really horrible things so horrible that you know this woman who was just sort of effortlessly murdered before becomes a mercy killing yeah it, uh, things that are uh not in this book that become incredibly important to later uh dark tower books and this might be shocking to you if you've only read the revised version uh 19 is not in here uh no one who is non-human other than slow mutants uh, are in here um uh, uh the crimson king is never mentioned <laughs> the dark tower is barely mentioned no so in in the book, the Dark Tower is more like a MacGuffin. Like, it's a thing that we're on the lookout for, that it's defining the journey, but has very few qualities to it up until the very end. We don't know much about it. We have no, no logical reason why uh, Roland's going after it. Um, and all of that kind of gets papered over and band-aided a little bit in the revised edition. Um, 
I think uh, anything else about Tull? Sorry, I went on forever about Tull. I just think it's really interesting. No, no, it's fine. Uh, no, I, I think Tull is fine. And then that brings us to the next chapter, which is called The Way Station. And this is where we get to what well, we get a couple of things. We get our first flashback. Well, OK, actually, this is not our first flashback. Uh, it is the first flashback to uh, Gilead, which is Roland's version of Camelot. Uh, but first of all, we pop back after the story of Tull to Brown and Roland. Roland heads on his way and he arrives at an old abandoned way station and he meets a young boy here named Jake. Jake Chambers and this guy this kid is going to become very very important not only for this book but for later books uh, but then we also get Roland's kind of first flashback to his own boyhood uh, in Gilead and kind of the context that he emerges from and, and all that sort of thing well do do we just want to talk about all of the um, Gilead flashbacks all in one whack here yeah sure let's go ahead and do that it, f- it feels easier than than trying to, to piece them out so like things we learn um, Roland is of the line of Eld, mm-hmm. which is like King Arthur's line, basically. Mm-hmm. His dad is King Gunslinger. <laughs> yep. Um, his mother, his, his, his father has an advisor named Martin mm-hmm. who is having an affair with Roland's mother. Mm-hmm. There is rebellion in the like hinterlands of this country and there are traitors among them. Um, one of these flashbacks is about Roland and his friend Cuthbert, who shows up, who will show up quite a bit later in the other books. Um, uh, it's about him and Cuthbert and, uh, overhearing the cook hacks talking about poisoning everyone in, um, another town Mm -hmm. with, with meat. And so there's a hanging that happens there. And it really is this kind of moment of like, Oh, Roland realizing like, Oh, things are on the, the downhill swing here. Like, the cook for the royal palace or whatever is um, a betrayer. Mm-hmm. Things might be going poorly. Mm-hmm. Eventually, this leads into another flashback later on in the book, but we're going to talk about it here, um, in which Roland and his buddies are all gunslingers in training, which means they train with this guy named Court, who I think is pretty cool. Do, do you at least like this character? <laughs> I mean, I know you don't. I don't know if you like all this fantasy stuff, but do you like this character of Court? I, I like this stuff. And the, actually, the thing about Gilead is that it's actually very workable in terms of like the type of fantasy it's doing. Uh, mm-hmm, yeah. If uh, you were, you know, in the last flashback, like the 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 young noble seeing the a person being executed for crimes against the state or whatever. Like there's, there's a reason I guess that that's also how game of Thrones begins. Uh, and Whoa, did not think about that. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like this. Interesting. It's sort of this primal scene for like fantasy aristocrat. And uh, this feels like one of the things that's actually really interesting, I think is that uh, when King writes fantasy, it can feel a lot like George R.R. R. Martin and the way that he writes um, the Song of Ice and Fire books. Like there's a lot of sort of overlap between them in that way. And almost all of the sort of flashbacks here have that feeling for for me. Yeah, they're all very grounded realism. Um, and, and you know, the or, you know, in, in the way of like a materialist pseudo medieval kind of thing. Um, you know, magic is kind of in the background implicitly, but there's this idea that kind of like in um gilead and in new canaan which i think is like the barony or something like that Mm -hmm. he mentions it but i don't know if that got written out of the canon or not um 
that in these uh in this kind of thing it's like the world has not yet moved on and so like things are still whole and they are not splitting apart and so it's not it's it's medieval and implicitly kind of post-technological post-apocalyptic technology but like the remnants of those things aren't really around so much and if they are they're workable you know it's like he mentions an electric stove at one point mm-hmm. they have you know they can use that and they have like some limited electricity because they have electric lights and things like that but it's not like there's you know abandoned you know hulks of cars or things like that right you know that that they're finding out in the in the hinterland so it's this kind of thing of like it's post-apocalyptic but something has recohered together in a way and it's very much idyllic fantasy in that regard um but but yeah the, they're being trained by this guy named court um who is just this crotchety you know weathered beaten man um because his whole his whole job is train brutally train these children to be soldiers i mean you know they're they're they begin training when they're like eight years old or something like that Mm -hmm. um and they train until they're adults um and they go through a thing called like the test around when they're 18 or something like that and if you pass that test you are able to kind of enter in and be an apprentice gunslinger and if you don't you uh are banished into the wasteland essentially Mm -hmm. Um, and like, this is just like fantasy bread and butter, but I really like it. Like I like in the, the way he describes the, the kind of, uh, geography and geometry of the thing of you enter from the West and you, you go into, and if you succeed, you go through the Eastern gate and you can like hang out with your family or whatever. But if you fail, you are banished out through the Western gate again and you can never come back. Mm -hmm. Like, like again, bread and butter fantasy right but like really the way that king writes it and the way that he kind of gives you this schematic imagination uh i i really really like it yeah uh so roland because he has found out that martin his father's advisor is having an affair with uh roland's mother which also, by the way, that should be clear, right? There's there's Camelot stuff going on here, uh, Lancelot and Guinevere kind of things, although it's 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 not like one to one. It's not a full just like rewriting of the Arthurian myth, but that's what it's intended to evoke. Uh, and so because of this, uh, Roland gets so enraged that he takes his and again, this is more fantasy bread and butter. He takes his test early and <laughs> wins nevertheless and becomes the youngest gunslinger. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah. But in like the way he and, and maybe this is too is like why I have such a fondness for this book in particular, the, those sections is like I was reading at this time. I'd read like the Chronicles of Perdane and I'd read um, the the Lord of the Rings by this point. And, and, and I'd read a lot of I'd read some like Drizzt novels and stuff, maybe some Dragonlance, too. I'd read some of that. And and the um, again, this kind of introduction to like an anti-hero, which I'd never really encountered because the way that Roland takes this test is that he, he, he goes in and he says that, you know, I'm going to take the test and he's being kind of being an adult because his, he, by finding out about this affair, um, he, he wants to do something about it. I mean, he basically wants to kill this man, mm-hmm. um, who is usurping his father in this relationship. And, you know, this is very both fantasy bread and butter and, and, and kingian bread and butter, I think very Oedipal. Um, 
very Oedipal, um, very much this kind of anxiety about cuckoldry and things like that. You know, think back to Cujo and how much of that really is focused on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but anyway, so, so you know, he finds this out. This is another interesting uh, revision uh, of the expanded and revised uh, edition. So in the original novel, Roland is goaded into this by Martin. Martin summons him into his mother's bedchambers and Martin is standing there with his like hand on Roland's mother's neck mm-hmm. and like, like too familiar. And basically it's like, how are your studies going? Blah, blah, blah. And is basically acting like his father and uh, his mother is clearly implicated in this and deeply ashamed. There's a lot going on here with the very, very little description. She won't look at him. She's only looking at her hands and he leaves there and he's like, oh yeah, I'm going to kill this man and I have to be, a, a, you know, I need some guns to do it. And so I'm going to go take my test. I'm going, to, I'm going to become a man to like become my own dad mm-hmm. <laughs> to do what my dad couldn't mm-hmm. do. Very Oedipal again. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the revision, uh, this has changed into like Martin beating his mother. Um, and so like King, I guess, felt like it couldn't be, you know, this like set of shames. You know, shame didn't wasn't enough, I guess, for King. It had to be this much more, I don't know, direct thing. Anyway, so uh, what Roland does to to win this battle at the end of the day, is that he takes his, uh, is it a hawk? Yeah. I don't know why I can't. Yeah, yeah. hawk, uh, David. Uh, yeah, David. David, his pet hawk, and he uses the hawk as a weapon, and he has uh, the hawk attack court, and, uh, you know, this this animal is dying. I mean, that court does this, uh, there's this amazing description where it's like, uh, Court did the only thing that he could do in this scenario, something that's that's totally illogical. He began to beat his own face with his like mallet that he's holding, um, because it's the only way to like kill this animal that's killing him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, th- so so this creature gives everything, you know, gives its life. It, it's like you know, wings are broken, and it's destroying this teacher in order for Roland to win. And and this was this moment of me being like, holy shit, like. This is this is not like these other books that I've read. Like this is not heroic in any kind of way. This is you know I didn't have this word at the time, but this is craven. This is <laughs> deceitful, right? Like like this dude is not good, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? He's not he, he's not your mama's fantasy, you know, whatever. And right, he's gone against the rules of the engagement. To be clear, right? Like the the thing is yes, like yeah. how this trial is supposed to work is that you go against your teacher and you choose one weapon. And he chooses a sort of weapon that is not explicitly like, you know, excluded, but like it's not what you're supposed to do in this situation. He's kind of yeah. uh, uh, come in at the side in that way Roland has. And this is after we've spent a lot of the book of people being like, Roland is not a smart man. The the narrative like, says that multiple times. Yes, everyone. Everyone says it. They're like, Roland is not a clever person. He is someone who can, like, fight really well. He's he's a good, shapeable instrument. But his, like, father says that he's not smart. Court says that he's not smart. Like you said, the narrator says that he's not a smart person. And, and there's this way in which that, like, you know, bluntness, where he just looks at the scenario in front of him and says, okay, well, I can sacrifice my friends, you know, this bird that I've raised. I can sacrifice that, and I will get an edge here, and so I will do it. You know, and it's not being sold as like, you know, in in another story in something like the Chronicles of Perdane, this would be a this would be a tale of 
someone outthinking the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. But this is Roland not being able to think the rules of the game in some ways. And so gets by on an edge case and uh, and, and wins and becomes, as you said, you know, the, the youngest gunslinger or whatever. Um, but yeah, it was, for me, it just was this kind of, you know, hammer to the head of like, ah, people, you can do that. Like you can have this kind of story that, that does this other thing. So anyway, I really like it. I will, I will uh, stop gushing about parts of this novel, but uh, I really think that's good. And then we find out, uh, do you want to talk about the revolution that happens? I, so like the thing that's going on in Gilead or, you know, New Canaan or whatever the barony is called. Uh, the thing that is happening is that there's some sort of, uh, like basically a peasants rebellion building. Uh, it's, it's, I can't remember the exact wording that's used, but uh, it's clear that there's some sort of oppositional movement building against the gunslingers and kind of their apparatus of power, this kind of uh, monarchical thing. And it is predicated upon people feeling like, uh, you know, there should not be folks living in castles and having fancy balls when there are so many others out in sort of like the hinterlands, you know, starving or just working as dirt farmers or what have you. Uh, and would you be surprised to learn that there it's very strongly implied that whatever force of evil is at work in the world is actually at work behind this peasants movement and that this move for greater equality is actually just some sort of like distraction so that the evil that is uh you know percolating at the furthest edges of this fictional universe can uh slam into gilead and and destroy this beautiful remainder of civilization yep who would have thought uh, but yeah, this is, it, it's about the sixties, right? In the seventies. Yes. Um, and, uh, you, something that, that did not strike me until I was rereading this for the show is that, you know, Stephen King's like lore, quote unquote, right? The King of Earth in its broadest sense, all bends toward figures repeating, you know, flag in particular repeating mm-hmm. over and over again and flag in the Crimson King repeating over again and having these kinds of relationships with one another as characters and uh it's because part of that is because stephen king wants to keep going back to this in some ways it's about him just wanting to relitigate the 60s and 70s forever Mm -hmm. it's wild to me just infinite post watergate novels yes i well uh do you think roland's dad you think he's jfk (laughs) uh it's kind of a real question JFK gets called a gunslinger in one of these later novels. He, he does. He does. Oh my god, you're right. Yes. Nope. Uh Stephen Stephen Desjane is JFK. I it's it's hmm, 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 interesting. All right. Uh we got a, a few other things we got to talk about with the episode. Uh what about Jake? What about this guy? Yeah, so uh back in kind of like the present moment of the narrative, uh Roland meets Jake who is in the original novel 9 years old. He gets aged up to 11, 12, which is, uh, again, sorry, spoilers, uh, the age he's going to be when he comes back later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, he, he returns. Yeah. Um, so it's, there's this little boy named Jake 
uh, very like like blonde all American kid. What's that you say? An all American kid here in the middle of post apocalypse hell desert? Yes, literally all American kid. Because it turns out we we figure this out in pretty short order that Jake somehow is from our world. He is from New York City, and he it, it's actually really cool how this builds up because Roland sees him and he's just like, well, here's this kid, and the kid. Uh, you know, is a little scared of him, but they, you know, realize they're not going to hurt each other and they sort of start talking. And Jake just sort of, he starts making offhand references to things from our world. And Roland's like, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, and then we, you know, learn sort of more about Jake because he doesn't know how he got here. And he doesn't really remember a lot of the context for things like he remembers. Um, I can't remember if this is in the original or in the revised edition. Right. But he like mentions a TV and Roland asks him, what's a TV? And uh, Jake can't really remember. Uh, so, to- yeah, that's the uh, that's the revised version. OK, uh, so uh, anyway. Uh, what ends up happening is that uh, Roland to figure out because he's like, oh, the dark man has set another trap for me or rather the the, the man in black is how he's referred to. Um, he mm-hmm. said another trap for me. Let's hypnotize this kid and figure out what's going on. And Jake was a young boy living in New York City in the 70s. Uh, he has very distant parents. Uh, he's kind of upper middle class. His dad works for some sort of major media network. His mother is kind of always off doing other things. Um, he is what he goes to a private school, right? Jake is very much being sort of uh, groomed to not really groomed to be uh, like America's young elite, right? That's just kind of like what socioeconomic class has done for him. He is on this particular track of life. Uh, And he is, as the narrative tells us, he is uh, dissatisfied with this, even though he's only nine years old and cannot really articulate his uh, own dissatisfaction to himself. He's having a midlife crisis at age nine, essentially. Yeah, he hates corporate America. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, he basically says, you know, my dad is, or the narration says like, his dad is a a network executive and he hates him because he's corporate America, but he doesn't know how to articulate that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, uh, I, first of all, like, I like Jake a lot. I think Jake is actually, uh, he's very similar to the character of, um, what was his name? Jeremy in Return to Salem's Lot. (laughs) He's very much like that style of like eighties, like boy in a movie who like gets to swear at the adults. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but he, he is in our world. (laughs) That's where he's from originally. And one morning while he is walking to school, uh, he gets sort of like pushed out uh, from like on into the middle of the road and he is run over and killed by a car. And then when he s- finishes that, when he stops being killed by a car, like when he wakes up, he is no longer in our world. He's in this way station. And uh, that's how he meets Roland. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, a lot's getting established in that, that like, this this is not just in one fantasy world, you know, that there's uh, some weird world transportation stuff going on. I mean, uh, Roland has already said a few times in the book that that time is broken mm-hmm. in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess there's maybe one way that we could read this. Maybe if you're reading at the time without um, the additional novels, you know, kind of rattling around in your head, you could think of that, that he time traveled, actually. Um, right. I think uh, by this point already, we've gotten a little so part of the sort of dying earth stuff here. Uh, that shows up dying earth if you don't know is just a subgenre of sort of fantasy and science fiction that takes place in like civilizations on planets that are like 
near the end of their life cycle on on an earth in the far, far future where the sun is getting ready to burn out or what have you. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's like an er- there are always these little bits in throughout the Dark Tower novels. And one that I think has happened already at this point is like Roland mentions or has heard about like some people in the desert who worship an old machine with the name Amico written on it. And it's like clearly mm-hmm, they're like yeah. worshiping an old gas pump. Yeah, the guy like puts it in between his legs. Yeah. To signify something. It's still like a shiny the steel is still shiny or whatever mm-hmm. he, he yeah i think he has like seen it from a distance or something like that but yeah there's a lot of that i mean he like he looks through magazines in in toll which is like such a funny mm-hmm. far future thing to think about oh yes the magazines which gets edited out in the revised edition because king is later going to establish that paper is scarce in this world and so he has to retcon the fact that there are magazines <laughs> people would have written all over the old Navy catalog (laughs) in the far future. Um, But yeah, like he's got, he's got this kid and um, this is another kind of cool moment too, right? The, the way station, cause Roland is dying of, of thirst um, when he, when he rolls up in the way station and he collapses and there's like a water pump here. You know, it literally is a way station in the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. There's a water pump. So there's this like ancient technology here, but then there's also like, a demon mm-hmm. who was there, who he's able to get a little bit of information from. Yeah, a demon living in the cellar or whatever. Mm-hmm. He steals its jawbone out of the wall. I really like that. Yeah. I really like this like jawbone as magical power, you know, the speaking um bone, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um it, it shows up a couple times in this book. But but you know, this does the this is something where doing the just king things thing that we've been doing is really interesting. Um that this explicitly has fantastical elements like that, like ghosts and stuff like that, that are not kind of explained by science fiction in any way. Mm-hmm. At least not yet. <laughs> he, Steve, Steve can't help himself. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but you know, uh, like we were talking about in Cujo that has the, the, the closet, right, where we, it's kind of hard to explain other than maybe some shininess connections here. Uh, you know, in, in that novel, wh- what's exactly going on in that closet? This is, again, kind of Stephen King being a little bit more of a fantasist and a horror person and not uh, explicitly letting something just be, oh, that's The Shining, you know, essentially, or that's TK or whatever. Uh, although, again, that stuff is going to show up in The Dark Tower later. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's interesting that that's, that's happening more and more. Uh, so, I mean, speaking of interesting things uh so jake is like hey i don't like being left alone in the desert to die could i maybe come with you he does not actually ask that directly but that is obviously the tension that is being set up here and roland is convinced that the reason jake has somehow entered our uh his world is through the machinations of the man in black and that this is some other sort of test or trap um and actually becomes pretty clear i think what this test or trap is to him quickly maybe in the next chapter even uh but anyway roland is like okay sure i'm not going to you know let you die in the desert come with me and they set off together into the mountains and that leads us into the next chapter which is called the oracle and the mountains in which nothing really happens (laughs) Mm. yes well uh, why do you laugh what happens there michael well, to to return to the good, the bad, and the extremely ill-advised, 
Sure. Uh, you may wonder what the Oracle is. You know, like it's it an Oracle shows up, something important better happen in this chapter. Well, the Oracle is this uh, sort of uh, spirit that they find that's inhabiting like a stone circle up in the mountains. And it is also, uh, for some reason, a succubus. And mm -hmm. it uh, captures and sexually assaults Jake. Yep. And Roland, like, frees him. Um, and uh, what just happened is never really addressed with Jake in any way. Uh, but then Roland kind of, like, takes... He takes a mescaline and then, uh, like... Yes makes a deal with the Oracle to like find out what secret knowledge it has. And it doesn't really tell him much of anything, but the fact that he, and then in, in sort of payment also the, the Oracle succubus um, has sex with Roland and that's, it doesn't seem like much. It seems just like another weird and fucked up thing to happen. Uh, but that's going to be important later. We'll talk about that in a future book. Uh, and then they continue on deep into the mountains, down into the caves, into like an old train system. Yep. Again, in which nothing really happens. <laughs> no, I mean, they do have a really great moment. Um, it, I think at the beginning of the slow mutants chapter, um, where they look, where Jake looks up at the mountain because that, you know, they're traveling across this, uh, 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 what do you call it? Uh, across this desert and they get to where the Oracle is. And that's kind of like a stream and they're kind of going into the foothills and then they can see the mountain. You know, the mountain is stretching up in front of them and way up above, they can see the man in black, right? Mm -hmm. This is like the first time in whichever edition you have 10 to 20 years <laughs> that Roland has actually set eyes on the man in black that he's been hunting. So it's this really important kind of thing. Um, and they get in and they like get on a mine cart and they start, uh, booting through the mountain yeah uh and this chapter is called the slow mutants and it gets very again uh dying earth post-apocalypse uh like low fantasy here as uh they are going through they, they have this hand cart that they're pumping and they're going through all these old uh rail lines and there are uh what they call slow mutants stalking them and slow mutants are like it, it they're, they're like glowing. So it's implied they're kind of like radioactive or something. And, you know, not all like they are humanoid, but they are not human anymore. They one of them has like tentacles or something like that. Yeah, they're all uh, gamma world NPCs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And then there's a, a really cool a moment where they roll into an old train station that's like uh so we've had kind of like the old west thing going on uh we know that there there's like an amico pump get somewhere out in the in the desert uh we also know that jake is from 1970s new york that feels an awful lot like our 1970s new york and then they arrive at this train station which just feels totally out of time it feels almost like a 19th century train station in the way that it's described uh and it's like a it's like an urban train station right it would have been like a london tube stop in in the 19th century um, but it's not quite that. And there are like corpses lying all around, like these desiccated corpses and Roland recognizes them from being, uh, like, uh, he thinks that they were exposed to some kind of gas in like a long ago war. He says something like the ancients could do things like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's unclear the way he describes their, uh, or the way the outfits are described that they're wearing, they could either be military 
or they could be train personnel. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this really great ambiguity there because Roland doesn't know one, one way or the other. Um, he finds a weapon store, quote unquote, and I'm pretty sure it's just a toy store. Yes. Um, and he's like, oh, there's guns. He's like, oh, they're full of lead. Or, you know, the barrels have been filled full of lead. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like that a lot. He gets a bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. And he, but he's like very displeased with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then they, they keep on trucking. They fight some slow mutants. Um, you know, it's pretty, not particularly interesting. Eventually, the um, they run out of track. Um, the little handcart can't keep going, so they have to walk on the rails. Yeah. And then we finally get to the 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 choice that has been building, uh, which has been strongly implied up until this point. We already know that Roland does not really value his friends um, or maybe doesn't really have friends is the better way to describe what's going on with Roland at the moment. Uh, he has been sort of suspecting for a while that the trap that the man in black has set for him is that he is going to have to choose between uh, the boy's life, Jake's life or pursuing the man in black. And guess what happens? Roland has a choice between saving Jake's life or pursuing the man in black. And uh, and but the the cool complication to it or the interesting complication is that Jake knows that, too, um, because this whole time he's like he you know, he says, no, you can't come over here like they have to jump over a little gap. And uh, Jake's like, oh, it's not going to hold your weight. Just go. Just leave me alone. Like, leave me here. Mm -hmm. Don't don't follow me because he knows that something like that is going to happen. And um, somewhere in this chapter, I think uh, Roland says that uh, I, I maybe like Alan or Jamie, like one of his gunslinger friends from his youth. Mm-hmm. Jake probably has, I think he calls it the touch, mm-hmm. um, which is it's the shining. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, it's it's the same thing that everyone has uh, in every Stephen King story. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so, you know, uh, Jake can even feel this kind of plot decision creeping up on him um as things go on and yeah the man in black appears and uh basically says uh, take me now or lose me forever yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as jake falls he's like hanging on by one hand over this like impossible depth and um or the the tracks have collapsed or whatever and like just imagine you know this little boy hanging off of the donkey kong rail cart uh, uh track and uh, waiting for a cowboy to either save him or or leave him to die. And yeah, Roland leaves him to die. <laughs> Let's him go. Mm-hmm. Let's him fall. Uh, and um, it I, I don't know. I like really works for me every time I re- read it. And I've actually reread these fairly recently in the past, like three years. Uh, and even then, like this last time I read it in this, you know, the past few days when I was reading it again, like this still, even though, you know, it's coming, even though it's going to happen, like, uh, the fact that he does it is, uh, I think very powerful, especially given the story that we already know about how he, his, you know, his use of David, the hawk, Mm -hmm. um, that, that like, there's nothing there inside of Roland, right? You know, there's just this kind of slate surface in there that everything kind of skates off of. Yeah, so uh, Jake is gone, and Roland goes out to to meet with the man in black, uh, and that's the last chapter. And it was retitled, uh, I think, The Gunslinger and the Dark Man rather than uh, The Gunslinger and the Man in Black, because, and this is, this is not a thing that is said in the novel as it once existed, and I don't even think it's something that you would necessarily pick up on. Well, I think you might if if you read the revised edition and if you were familiar with the story of The Stand. 
the man in black is Randall Flagg. Same vibe, for sure. Yeah. He's like, I mean, he's like, oh, hello, gunslinger. Welcome to my little encampment. I'm so glad you let that boy die. Now let me tell you your future after I make you dinner. I like he's kind of the Mad Hatter a little bit. Uh, I mean, that's that's how he acts, right? Like he that's Randall Flagg, the man of great good humor. And that's how he talks to to Roland, right? He's he's always like effervescent. Yeah, I don't know what to do with um, with the Dark Tower Randall Flag because he's kind of the same character and he's kind of not, and we'll talk about that obviously with with future books. But there's a real kind of difference in quality about the way that he's written around the Dark Tower stuff than there is in the Stand. Mm-hmm. I they don't feel like the same character to me, um, and and I think it's notable too that that uh in the original version he's not Randall Flagg right right like in this original you know or, uh, creation of the novel he's not really Randall Flagg but is later it's made very clear that he's this kind of flag character um yeah uh who moves through the dark tower stuff and i i, I think did you i i, I might have misheard you but uh, so in in the original version 1982 version Mm -hmm. it's the gunslinger and the dark man it's the gunslinger and the man in black it's in the revised Mm -hmm. edition that it's the gunslinger oh no 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 you're right no 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 yeah yeah so so that's the weird thing about it to me right it's he oh yeah huh yeah he revises it away from the the association but it's in fact made very clear later in the other dark tower books that this character is a randall flag yeah huh uh so I, I I think maybe that's like trying to you know um, red herring you a little bit you know send you <laughs> in the wrong direction. Um, I don't I don't really know what to do with that, but but yeah, I mean it, he very much is like um, come hang out here, you know. Um, let let me give you a big info dump of all kinds of stuff that's not particularly helpful or useful. Um, and uh, but what I do think is interesting is that the man in black basically gives him all this information about the future like here's what's going to happen in these next books mm-hmm. you know so he talks about like uh the tower in merlin and, you know merlin being kind of a guardian of the tower who is his master mm-hmm. and above him is this creature called the beast mm-hmm. and 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 like all of that gets written out mm-hmm. you know um St- stephen king kind of rev- revises all of that to be much more in line but but so what's interesting to me is that it doesn't seem like stephen king had much of an idea of where he wanted any of this to go and his writing during the 80s and 90s in which the the dark tower universe really starts to creep through a huge number of stephen king's books um when that starts happening he starts understanding what he wants to do and and that that creeping and revision gets really weird when you start looking at books like insomnia which is hugely about the dark tower and which is almost entirely revised out of existence um, you know, basically a, an immense amount of information that's revealed about Dark Tower stuff in that book. Uh, you know, in one of the later Dark Tower books, someone's like, yeah, that was all fake. That was all made uh-huh. up. Someone made that up. Don't worry about it. Um, and that's like 800 pages about uh-huh. Dark Tower stuff that just ends up being false. So it's interesting that that the uh, the kind of broader fiction that's being told here is almost like throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and then Stephen King just kind of later figuring out what he wants to stick and what he doesn't want to stick. Um, Which makes reading a lot of these books really frustrating 
For example, if you want to be very frustrated by the Dark Tower books, try to figure out what the world looks like. <laughs> like, try to figure out a map of the world of the Dark Tower. Um, and go and look at fan versions of it, because there's never been an official one released. Go look at fan versions and, and see if you can figure out how they actually square with the books, because none of them can be correct. <laughs> um, and it's, it's precisely because Stephen King has just written lots of things that are contradictory into these books. Mm-hmm. Um, and has just decided to pick at some of those threads and leave some of them behind. And a lot of what the Man in Black here says is stuff that kind of gets left behind or revised in such a way as to not matter. Yeah, we get sort of... uh, So Roland is going to draw three, and the Man in Black is giving uh, a sort of reading with some tarot cards here. Uh, But they're not real. Well, one of them is real, the tower itself, but the others are all kind of made up. And so he, like, draws three cards and, like... Mm, And the Hanged Man. The Hanged Man is one. Oh, yeah. So the the Hanged Man is is Roland himself. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's a man that I think he's called the Prisoner, who's a man with, like, a baboon on his back. Um, the Lady of Shadows, uh, who is uh, a woman who is like both laughing and crying at the same time. Um, and she's uh, spinning at a wheel. Yes. And she's sitting at a spinning wheel. Uh, the third one is, gosh, is that the one that's death? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't write these down yeah. for whatever reason. Anyway, there, there's there's a third one, and one of them eventually, th- some of these things are going to come back and some of them are, aren't, but like one of the cards is like death and, you know, uh, the man in black says, but not for you, gunslinger. Uh, and that's that's a good line. Oh, sorry. Yes, it is. You are correct. It is death. Uh, and then... Uh, and this is also like where it becomes the clearest that Roland is looking for the Dark Tower. Like that's this mm-hmm. is where it actually comes up. And uh, the man in black gives him like this vision of all of creation and all of eternity. And it's deeply painful for Roland in, in some way. I mean, I guess because he's like seeing all of everything at once somehow. Uh, but basically what the man in black tells Roland um, is that, yeah, I'm going to tell your future and now you're going to move on from me and you're going to head further. Uh, I, west is where he's heading, I think. Is he heading west or east? Anyway, he, it doesn't matter. He's going to the sea, right? <laughs> Keep going. It's incoherent. Right? Keep going in the direction that you were going. You're going to get to the sea and like the next part of the journey is going to begin. Uh, the other yeah. thing that we find out uh, is that the man in black was in Gilead before it fell and is in some way related to Martin. Like he was, uh, he, he presented himself as like a monk or a friar as sort of like below Martin, but actually it's suggested that he was somehow in control of Martin and therefore, uh, you know, circuitously in control of all of the stuff that happened at Gilead that, uh, led to Roland's kind of problems and, and the fall of Gilead. Yeah. The, um, in in the original edition, the one that we read, yeah, he says that I was Walter and I was controlling, who was like a, a like a monk, mm-hmm. and I was controlling Walter. In the revised edition, it's just he 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 was both of those people mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And don't think about it too hard. Yeah. <laughs> Randall Flagg can be multiple people. Yeah. It, he will be multi- that's the wildest thing about this is that eventually in the dark tower we will get to the point where randall flag has been like seven yes. over the, over the course of these books and, and it's just like okay yeah i guess that's how things work like whatever yeah. 
but yeah, that's that's how this book ends uh, with Roland uh, like falling asleep after witnessing a vision of all of creation uh, and then seeing a skeleton wearing the man in black's clothes. Uh, and in this edition, he's like, damn, I must have been asleep for a long time. Uh, and then in the the revised edition, um, there's a little bit of a hint that maybe this is just something that was set up and the real man in black has scampered off somewhere. Roland has kind of a suspicion uh, because <laughs> Randall Flagg can be two people at once, but he also cannot be but one of those people cannot be dead. Uh, so then, yeah, that's that's the end of the book is is Roland kind of sets off uh, toward the next part of his journey. Yeah. The, the one thing about that in the vision, uh, because uh, uh Walter, the man in black, has told him all this stuff about like, hey, the Dark Tower is pretty weird, right? Because like, if you think about it, uh, all the atoms in the nib of a pencil are all real small, but they appear to be one thing. And if you zoom out, everything in the universe appears to be one thing. So like the Dark Tower is is scale, basically, mm-hmm. right? It's like, what if the whole universe but one thing mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and so Roland has this like wild vision of all of that. And he's kind of zooming in and out and seeing all these things in the universe. And, you know, he like sees the creation of the cosmos and all these things. And then like, it zooms out so far that he perceives the universe he lives in to be part of a blade of purple grass. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, my God. (laughs) Holy shit. And then, yeah, he wakes up. He's like eight. He feels like he's aged 10 years. It's it's the end of the first Men in Black movie. It is the end of the first Men in Black movie. It's 100 percent that. Um, And uh, in fact, I think I'm almost certainly had seen the the Men in Black before I read this book. And I was like, holy shit, this is just like and that blew my mind also as a child. (laughs) Like I was like, oh, my God. And then I think after when I read this, you know, I I have a pretty distinct memory of being like more than one person's thought about this before. (laughs) (laughs) Like this is wild. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what happens. Um. The uh, and yeah, so he goes down toward toward the ocean and chills out there and uh, is going to have a great adventure in the ocean. Nothing bad going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's nothing but sunshine and rainbows from this point out for Roland Disjane. <laughs> Basically, that's what the end of the book says. It's like nothing but smooth sailing from here on out. Just me in the ocean. Um, Michael, we have a couple segments in the show uh, that, that we need to talk about. The first one is my favorite Kingism. Um, where it's a special Stephen King touches that show up, um, in, in this book, what's your favorite Kingism in this, uh, the, in the, the dark tower colon, the gunslinger. Well, you might've noticed that I was pretty quiet when you were talking about the scene where, uh, Roland has to choose between Jake and following the man in black. And that is because it is part of my favorite Kingism. Uh, I already said that the first line of this novel is good. I think it is Um, like despite not liking the Dark Tower generally, despite really hard bouncing off of this stuff. uh, There are there are good lines here. The opening one is one of them. This one is the other. It's the one that really stuck with me. It is uh, so. So Jake is, uh, you know, hanging over the precipice. Uh, Roland is standing over him. Roland could help him up if he wants to, but if he doesn't turn around and follow the man in black, then he will not be able to get to the man in black. And of course, as you already pointed out, Cameron, Jake's known that this was coming. This is a thing that he suspected the entire time. And so Jake looks up at Roland dangling over. He's dangling over the abyss. He looks up at Roland and he says, go then. 
there are other worlds than these. And then he lets go. And then Jake is gone. And I remember, uh, as you said, you were very struck by that when you first read it. And I was very struck by this um, specifically sort of the the way that this uh, I mean, so thing number one thing I'm just putting together, uh, the Dark Tower series is Jake Chambers isekai. Um, <laughs> because he dies and goes to a fantasy world, right? It's doing this kind of weird thing with like uh, uh, portal fantasy tropes where like a kid goes through, uh, you know, a wardrobe and ends up in Narnia, except here it's like Jake dies. And when he dies, he doesn't go to heaven. He doesn't go to hell. He just like goes to this other world that's sort of like his, but also not at all like his and very dangerous. And he has to like join this like idiot cowboy on his quest. And like, it's, it's like, like imagine being nine years old and this is your life now. Right. Uh, and then he gets to this point where, uh, he's dangling over an abyss and he thinks like, I'll just die again. Like, why am I putting up yeah. with this? I'll just die again. Cause like there's apparently what happens is you just like shoot off to some new world. So yeah, go then there are other worlds than these. I, I really think that Stephen King was toying with that in, in these in this book in particular, mm -hmm. because that's also what Brown says. You know, he says, uh, Roland says, do you believe in an afterlife? And he says, yeah, I think this is it. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, so, so across this book, Stephen King is toying with the idea of like this being the afterlife. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, swerves from that pretty significantly. But um, yeah, I, I mean, and there are other worlds than these. Yeah, <laughs> we, we learned. I was gonna say, it turns out there are other Jakes than these. Uh, oh, yeah. Like uh, if hey, hey, if you like uh, important plot numbers and uh, other worlds than these and different versions of characters who show up after uh, previous versions of those characters have died, uh, you will love Homestuck which we will do a podcast on if we reach $4,500 on our Patreon, patreon.com slash reigns touch. I refuse to learn anything about it until someone pays me to do so. So uh, I'm not going to follow up on that. My favorite Kingism here is uh, when he's, he's uh, about to fight court. Mm -hmm. um, and so he like, you know, knocks in here and the, and the shape of the scenario is that uh, he barges into courts like apartment. And court is like, look, if you challenge me here, I'm going to beat you up and, and maim you. And then I will exile you. And that will be a problem. Mm -hmm. And Roland says, no, I'm going to do it. And, and court says, you get one, you get one chance to back out of this. And, and Roland's like, I'm not going to back out. And then court over the course of the scene is like, look, and basically says, you're my prince. You know, you, you, I am in service to you because you are Stephen Dischains. Um, son, you, you know, you'll, you will be the Lord of the land. Essentially I'm breaking my own oath. I will let you renege one more time. You know, I, I will allow you to do that. And, uh, Roland says, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, you know, and basically says you're my subject and I love you, but we have to do this. Uh, but in the middle of that, um, there's this like short conversation. And it really does feel like Stephen King writing at his best because, it's the kind of thing where a character in Maine, you know, Stephen King has such a good, we've talked about this a million times, but he has such a good kind of grasp of like idiom, mm -hmm. you know, like and even if it's not something someone would say, it feels like something someone would say, mm -hmm. you know, like a kind of a back pocket phrase. 
and um, and maybe this is something people say in the real world, and I've just never heard it. But this is court talking um, when uh, Roland won't won't back down. And he says, "It's too bad," the teacher said absently. You have been a most promising pupil, the best in two dozen years, I should say. It will be sad to see you broken and set upon a blind path, but the world has moved on. Bad times are on horseback. Mm -hmm. And like, that's great because we know that things are like horseback is the best technology they've got. Yeah. You know, as far as transport, bad times are coming as hard as they could come. Um, And uh, and and you're going to not be here because, uh, you know you're going to be destroyed. And obviously that doesn't happen, but, uh, I, yeah, I just really, that, that bad times are on horseback. It's just really like a strong Kingism to me. Um, and I think Stephen King could put that in the mouth of an old man hunting vampires in Maine, <laughs> or he could put it in this like fantasy world and it feels appropriate to both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's something everyone could do. What in the Kingiverse is the next segment, and that's where we talk about the connections between whatever we've just read or uh, and the greater body of Stephen King work or, uh, you know, little Easter eggs and things of that nature. And who, boy, uh, are they all are they here? I just wrote the Dark Tower. Yeah, I mean, the Dark Tower uh, the Dark Tower is going to become the literal linchpin around which Stephen King builds his multiverse. Uh, We've talked in previous episodes about how we've seen in sort of more recent main set novels, uh, recurring locations coming together, uh, you know, like, in, in the Dead Zone, the town of Salem's Lot is mentioned in The Running Man in the previous episode, Derry is mentioned. Uh, King's fictional geographies, uh, and all of the different like versions of them, Castle Rock, and so on, uh, all of his different versions of New York are going to end up uh, subsumed within explicitly or implicitly under the series that is the Dark Tower, right? This is uh, presented by King as kind of the backbone of everything he is writing. Uh, and there's going to be more and more stuff to say about that as we read more and more of these books. Yeah, it's to the point. So like in my um, in my little mass market paperback here. So I've got a little thing that says like, um, you know, it's like the also by Stephen King. So you can like go and and so it's like a big list of Stephen King novels. And then there's a subsection that says as Richard Bachman. It's got the Bachman books. Uh, It's got collections, which are the story collections, nonfiction, screenplays. And then there's a subsection that's just called the Dark Tower. And by the point that this was out, the first three had been out. Um. By the point that we get to something like uh, the seventh book of the Dark Tower, that the Dark Tower like associated books thing is going to be 20 books wide. You know, Um, if 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 the geography of Maine in particular, you know, Castle Rock and Derry, those fictional places, if they become like shared setting, then the Dark Tower becomes like the shared metafiction, you know, metafiction, metaphysical and metafictional backdrop against which everything happens Mm -hmm. so like at some point it's like no murder happens on the planet without it relating back to (laughs) the dark tower in some way right Right. and on 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 one level that sounds really silly and on the other hand we're going to read the novel insomnia (laughs) 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 in which the, the silliness i promise you uh will will be coming out um but so yeah so that obviously this is the kind of initial formation of those ideas um and in some ways, it feels to me, we'll talk about this as we go forward, but, you know, he says repeatedly over and over across a lot of works that he could just never let the Dark Tower go. Mm-hmm. You know, he could never let it drop. 
it was always in the back of his mind, even if he wasn't working on it. And all those novels just feel like him trying to work on it without being able to work on it, mm-hmm. um, you know, and being afraid of working on it, I think. Um, uh, I don't know. What, what other stuff in the Kingiverse? What other uh, things that show up? Well, uh, we've already mentioned that we had an evil religious woman uh, who mm-hmm. was like both Carrie moms or care who was both Carrie moms yeah. <laughs> character. Carrie moms. Hey there, Carrie moms. How are you doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> Do you carry moms? <laughs> Thank you for your email. <laughs> um, uh, we have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sylvia Pitson, who's, you know, like the, the um, evil religious woman, uh, like Carrie's mom. She's also a version of the character that we're going to see later on in the mist, uh, the, that novella, mm-hmm. um, specifically in the way that she can like whip people up into a frenzy, uh, where they're willing to do, you know, like blood sacrifices and things like that. Um, uh, we've mentioned the fact that this book is, is shot through with a kind of, uh, nostalgia that is it is uh you know a, a sort of mourning for uh, a a lost golden age that has some kind of reactionary tenor to it but it is not this is not the running man this is not as as bad as is uh, some of the instances of this attitude that we've pointed out uh have been um you mentioned the shining uh i guess the purple grass the blade of purple grass that's going to come back later Really? Yeah, it comes back in From a Buick 8. Oh, you know, I don't think I've ever finished From a Buick 8. Oh, really? I I like From a Buick 8. I'm interested, or I did like it. I'm interested in revisiting that one, because I remember reading that one and feeling like, dang, this is just a real good, like, Stephen King book. Like, it, it, it very quickly became one of my, like, favorite recent Kings, and I haven't touched it since. So, anyway. Yeah, I think, I think that's the general going opinion. I think what happened is I, like, got it from the library one time, and I had to take it back. Ah, okay. Like, like maybe, uh, I think maybe it was the end of a semester, and I just didn't get through it with finals or something. I just never went back to it. I don't, I don't, I have no ill will toward, uh, uh, toward, toward for a Buick 8. Yeah. I don't know why I'm having such a hard time with the title, but... Uh, I'm also interested in, in revisiting that and the low men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of extended dark tower stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, next segment is Uncle Stevie's mixtape, where we talk about and review the music that has shown up in the book that we have just read. Uh, do we want we, we didn't split these up beforehand. Do we just kind of like want to work through them together? Like get our get both yeah, of our did, opinions. <laughs> did you did you uh, listen to them all? I have already heard them all, so okay. Well, I forgot. I forgot. So, uh, but I have listened to some of them before. So, uh, yeah, let's just uh, we we didn't split them up. We'll get back on uh, message next time. But for this time, uh, yeah, we got the first one here, by which is "Hey Jude," uh, which everyone loves in the post-apocalypse. Uh-huh. Uh huh. By the Beatles. Yeah. Um, this is how this is used is great because very early on in the novel, like within the first couple of pages, when he flashes back to Tull, uh, Roland talks about coming into town and like hearing uh, Hey Jude being played on the saloon piano. So it's like that first kind of signal that something is wrong here in terms of time. Uh, and it is played constantly on every saloon piano from this point uh, uh, onward. Um Hey Jude is a pretty good song, I think. Like three stars. Do you think this is where um 
we've already talked about Bioshock Infinite, I think, on the show one time. Mm-hmm. But do you think like that those songs being like those reinterpretations from a different time and place that that you think that's in conversation with the Dark Tower? Oh, 100 percent. I think that do you. Uh, so, you know, there's always a there's always a woman and there's always a lighthouse. and There's always a guy. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a Dark Tower might just be a lighthouse. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. Uh, hey, Jude, one star. OK. I what uh uh na 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 <laughs> that's not music <laughs> no thanks all right take your crap out of here you liverpoodlians uh yeah uh, uh, uh the next song is careless love which has been on this segment before it's just like an old traditional song uh it it's I think I reviewed it when it came up the first time. And what I said, this is this is a pretty good song. It just depends a lot on the version that you're hearing in terms of however you respond to it. Uh, I mention it here only, I think, because it becomes very important later. Uh, Careless Love becomes the song. Uh, it, it becomes Roland and uh, Susan's song in Wizard and Glass. Mm. So a later Dark Tower book, this is going to come up. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Shall we gather at the river? This is another traditional song. It's a, a gospel hymn. Uh, you know, shall we gather at the river where bright angel feet have trod, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sung in the church. It's uh, whatever. Like Burl Ives did a really cool version of it because Burl Ives has, uh, you know, a mega voice. Uh, I'm listening to uh, Andy Griffith doing it right now. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not good. Okay, yeah, no, it's it's uh very simple. Um, I would give it I I would give it maybe like one star, but the Burl Lives version is like four stars to me. Okay. Uh, what uh, ease on down the road? Yeah. Uh, by Diana Ross. Uh, I guess this is mentioned as being one of the songs that's played during court dances in Gilead. Well, I'm listening to the Diana Ross version right now, and I don't know in any universe how it really changes the vibe of Gilead. Yeah, no, that's I cannot imagine the version of this that's being sung in Gilead. Stephen King really likes the Wizard of Oz. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's going to show up again, so maybe I don't. Uh, that song's good. It is. I'm really imagine. It's really funny to me to imagine like all the all the lords and ladies of Gilead in their finery, like in the ballroom, just like line dancing to this. Yeah, I mean, it really say if that is what is intended here, right? If that that's the song that's being referenced, then it sets up Gilead as being like. The center of civilization, the last vestiges of like, you know, the human condition where disco reigns yes. <laughs> and uh, against the, the hinterlands of American accomplishment, of, you know, of, of decimation of, <laughs> of humanity where Hey Jude jangles into eternity. And I guess that's right. Like I, I in my ideal universe of like, you know, uh, you know. If you ask me to fantasize, you know, to create this like fantasy universe, I would also say that like the good are probably listening to disco and the bad are listening to the Beatles. So <laughs> I get it. <laughs> um, the, yeah, Paul, Paul McCartney is only going to be listened to in, in a fallen land. Um, so I understand. Uh, the final song 
Uh, this one is also played at. Uh, this is this is the the uh, next track uh, following on from the other one. This is also played at the court dances in Gilead. It's one hundred leagues to Banbury Cross, which is a nursery rhyme. Steve, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. How old is? Uh, uh, hold on, let's see. Uh, what, what's uh, what's his oldest kid's name? Uh, Joe. Oh yeah, is his name actually Joe though? Yeah, I think it is uh, Joseph. Okay, not not the guitarist. Hold on one moment. Uh, he's probably Joe Hill on Wikipedia, isn't he? Yes, he is. That scamp. Uh, not the activist. Although I'm sure he loves that. Uh huh. Well, I mean, that's why he went for it. Mm-hmm. Seventy-two. So. He would be uh, 10 years old. He's Jake's age. He is Jake. Uh Uh-huh. So maybe he's just listening to a lot of nursery rhymes. I don't know. Uh, Joe Hill's uh, Wikipedia picture is pretty wild. It's some real Steve. Look, I don't know. Look, this is not, I don't mean this in a negative way in any way, but I don't know if I would look at a picture of my father from 1975 and be like, I'm just going to look like that the rest of my life. (laughs) Like, I'm going to look like my dad in 1975. That's definitely what Joe's decided to do, though. It It is. He was like, I want my dad's haircut. I want my dad's beard. I'm going to look like my dad mm-hmm. from 1975. Well, uh, that about does it for the gunslinger in the beginning of the Dark Tower saga. Uh, next month, we are going to be what we're going to be watching and reading Creepshow. Uh, the third book that Stephen King published in 1982. Uh, it'll be a pretty brisk read because it is a comic book and we will be watching the film adaptation of that, I assume. Uh, is, is that the case, do you think? That sounds right to me. Okay, yeah, we'll be doing a, a real strict comparison. Um, if you want those bonus episodes uh, where we discuss the film in addition to whatever book we've read that month, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch and pitch us $5. That's how you get access to those bonus episodes. Your bonus episode for this month that should be in your feed right now when you're hearing this is on 1995's The Mangler, uh, widely regarded as one of the silliest and worst Stephen King adaptations. Uh, we have not recorded it yet but i imagine the conversation will be uh interesting do you think so cameron oh yeah uh if i i because and i'll say this before uh, i'm sure i'll repeat this on the thing so if you've already listened to that you've probably already heard me say this but uh yeah it has a reputation for being like garbage and uh like you said goofy silly and uh i think it's pretty good (laughs) It's not the best movie I've ever seen, but it is way more interesting than some of the other movies that we've watched for the show. So um, I'm excited to talk about it. I think that's going to be a really good episode. Yeah, yeah. Come for that, because I think we're going to have kind of a contrarian take on on that film, uh, because I agree. I think I think the movie's uneven, but there's parts of that movie that I think are really cool. So <laughs> we'll talk yeah. about that. Oh, and you'll notice, I think some people were uh, expecting this episode. Uh, you know, we got the Mangler. I think some people were expecting us to, to do the Dark Tower um, but we're going to wait a little while. We're going to get maybe into the Dark Tower books a little bit before we do the Dark Tower, just because the Dark Tower film is really not the gunslinger in any way. It's kind of like the gunslinger plus parts of the wastelands and some other stuff, too. So maybe we'll probably do it somewhere, you know, in the second, third, fourth book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so we will do it at some point, but it didn't really seem appropriate right now. 
Yeah, in order to talk about that film, I have not seen it, uh, and I thought we would probably do it for this, because uh, I, I ignored everything about that movie, and when I asked Cameron about it, he was like, actually, it's kind of about the other books, and then I ended up reading a summary, I'm sorry, folks, but I had to know what the hell that meant, and... Uh, yeah, that movie, if you read The Gunslinger and then watched The Gunslinger, you would have <laughs> no idea how these things are related at all. Yeah, no, uh, no. So, um, yeah, that that uh, that will come later this month. It's The Mangler. Uh, last month, we talked about the Running Man film with our special guest, uh, Simone de Rochefort. Yay! Hooray! Uh, if you want to hear us talk about that, again, uh, patreon.com slash range touch. If you've listened to the last episode, you also know that because this is our anniversary episode, woo! it's one year woo. of Just King Things. Anyway, to celebrate one year of Just King Things, uh, we asked you for questions. Uh, we have those questions now, I hope, uh, and we will answer them during a special bonus question and answer episode that will come out two weeks after this hits your feed. Uh, and yeah, it'll just be an episode of Cameron and I like answering whatever questions you have for us about Just King Things and the process of, uh, you know, making this show. Um, and I don't know who knows. I think maybe the question sewer will become one of our recurring segments here in main episodes, too. So we can, you know, occasionally answer questions if we if we feel like it. Do we, do we have an email for the question sewer? Uh, yeah. Uh, if you're hearing this, you will not get your question in in time for us to answer it on the, the next Q&A episode, the first Q&A episode, I guess. Uh, but if you want to ask us questions in the future, you can shout them into the question sewer, the question sewer at gmail.com. <laughs> the question sewer wasn't taken? No. <laughs> Weird. There's like a 30% chance that I would have started a blog called The Question Sewer <laughs> at some point. <laughs> uh, well, that's great. The question sewer at gmail.com. That's uh, easy to remember. Astonished that no one has that. <laughs> but um, uh, Well, we have one other announcement to make. You, do you want to make it? I'll, I'll let you do it. I, I was going to say you can make it because you know the details. <laughs> Hey, as of this uh, very episode, if you are hearing this this moment, then you can go to rangedtouch.com uh, or you can go look on our twitter.com slash rangedtouch page in order to check out our brand new merch store. Um, assuming everything has gone correctly between when we're recording this and the day you hear it, you will be able to buy a couple shirts. Um, uh, well, no. Yes, no, a couple shirts, <laughs> a couple shirts that we've made around this show and uh, and a really cool print that we've had made um, and or that we've commissioned we and have it made. Uh, I guess that's the same thing. But <laughs> I was going to say, vibe. what's the distinction there? Well, I feel like there's a vibe difference. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> we were so, being too lordly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Ren Hawthorne uh, um, uh, helped us out with, with that. You, you can learn all about it. Uh, over on the thing we're really excited to do it uh we really don't believe we're gonna make any money at doing merch we just think it's gonna be really fun to do merch mm -hmm. um so go and check that out um we, we've got a little store it's gonna be the range touch store in a broad sense so it's not gonna be just king thing just king things stuff over there right now um uh or in the long run it won't just be that but right now we've only got just king things uh things over there and uh, I think you'll find it's pretty cool. Um, we worked really hard on it. We've been commissioning the stuff for a couple of months now. We're kind of working on it to get it ready to go. I think you'll uh, uh, think that it's neat. You might want to hang it up, that kind of thing. 
and uh, it all goes to supporting the show. Uh, we don't run advertisements. We don't advertise this in any way other than word of mouth. So hopefully you can buy a shirt or buy a piece of art and you can advertise it uh, with your body, uh, which is uh, the best kind of advertising to have. This is why uh, people all over the world are wrapping their cars in Just King Things um, memorabilia. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why they're like super gluing uh, little Stephen Kings to the, the top of their radio antennas. People love Just King Things, and we want to make sure that you've got the gear to do that with. So uh, go to rangetouch.com or go look at the description down below this episode uh, for a link to the new Range Touch store. And people might be wondering, you know, what is it that, you know, brings us all together to wear our Just King Things merch, to spread the good word of this show, and to read every single Stephen King book in publication order and then talk about them like, what is going on? Why are we doing it? What drives us? What drives us in this interminable quest, Cameron? Uh, money. Oh, okay. So are we talking about? Are you talking about money? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wait. Oh, I think what you mean. Oh, I see. Uh, is it because we're doing it for the world? Is this mm-hmm. what you're asking me about? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we... Oh, yeah. B- because we have to also do it for Steve. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Cy, folks, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.